Would you pray with me? Redeemer who lives, let your life now mark our own. Open our eyes and unstop our ears that we might leave this place different than we came in by the grace of your resurrection power. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's getting late in Luke's gospel. The shadows of Jesus's life are growing long. He's already fed the 5,000. He stood transfigured on the mountain. He's rode in on the donkey. And now he's in the temple right before Passover, teaching and telling the good news. We don't know why good news made the theologians who heard him nervous, but it did. In Luke 20, they come at him with their best shots, their best attempts to undermine and implicate him. They ask him all the hot button issues. They ask him about money. They ask him about politics. They ask him about spiritual authority. They even ask him about marriage specifically marriage in the afterlife. That was our, our passage today. A woman married seven brothers, buried them all, bore no children. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, most of these questions, the ones about taxes and, and Caesar, and the one that asked Jesus by what authority he does what he does, Jesus deflects. He, he asks a question back, or he redirects the conversation, or he tells a parable. This man is shrewd. He sees what these rhetorical jabs are meant to do, and he dodges as if he's not even trying. Nobody can land a punch. But when this question of marriage comes, Jesus changes his tone. He doesn't trade a question for a question. He doesn't tell any stories. He doesn't ask them to give him a coin. He gets down to theological business and he puts all his cards on the table. He speaks plain. He quotes scripture as if something different is at stake and something is because this isn't actually a question about marriage. It's a question about resurrection. And when shadows grow long, when the sun is low in a human life, questions of resurrection are deadly serious. The particular believers who question Jesus in this passage are called Sadducees. They're a group of religious thinkers that didn't believe in life after death. And, and so we know, as Jesus knew, that their story is disingenuous. There is no woman 
there, there are no seven brothers, and they don't really expect a solution to this problem. This is a theological puzzle box that, that's meant to, to make the whole concept of resurrection seem farcical and chaotic and maybe even unethical. Whose will she be? They want to know, rather smugly, because there's no answer that makes any sense. Unless you've asked the wrong question. Maybe who the woman belongs to is not the most important thing to know. Maybe that question is only relevant in a world where marriage is about lineage and legacy. It is a question of ownership. It's a question of property, which only matters if marriage is a dodge of death. I mean, in the Sadducees' own words, that's why the widow remarries again and again to give the dead brother children to extend his name beyond the grave. But what if death had no more power? There's more to life and the age to come than escaping death, Jesus tells them. Things work differently. You're thinking too small. In the resurrection, human relationships are reordered. The worth of a woman is reframed. Resurrection isn't an extension of the age you know. It's an age you've got yet to imagine. And we still have trouble imagining it. When we face lengthening shadows, we theologians of both the armchair and tenured varieties, we still ask the question, whose? As in, whose inheritance and whose property? Whose denomination? We still snatch at questions of ownership when the chill of death is in the air. What is my legacy? What will I pass on and to whom? We can't even imagine different questions, much less different answers. And that might be enough for Jesus to say on that day in that temple so long ago. That might even be enough for Jesus to say today, calling the bluff of leaders whose visions of life are too small, casting a vision of a not yet world, a far off world. But it's not enough for me because I'm still thinking about that woman. Not not the woman who doesn't exist, the woman of the Sadducees' story. I'm thinking about a real woman who's living right now, today, being treated like property, like a means to an end. And I'm wondering what this passage says to her, what, what the good news is for her she, she may not have had a choice in who she married, or she may have made that choice before she knew what was at stake. She may be at the mercy of circumstances beyond her control, displaced by bullets or drought or a landlord that keeps raising the rent. She, she may have been taught from an early age to bite her tongue and lower her expectations. She may be carrying a weight of grief. I'm going to speak plain. I'm going to show you my cards. Because resurrection is a deadly serious subject. I want this passage to say more to her than wait. Wait. 
for the resurrection day, that new age when death is no more. Wait for your life to be more than an issue to be debated or your vocation as a child of God to be honored. Wait for that day when you're like an angel and you don't have to worry about this world anymore. I want Jesus to do more than cast a vision of the world to come. I want that vision to change this world. And at first reading, Jesus' description of those two ages seem to have nothing to do with each other. There's no point of contact between them. Not even marriage crosses that chasm. So what difference does resurrection make in marriages now, in, in denominations now? in the streets of Durham, now. The shadows weren't long, two Tuesdays ago, when Xavion Tucker crossed Driver Street. It was two in the afternoon. He was 17 years old. He was shot in broad daylight, and he died in the front yard of Shepherd's House United Methodist Church right here in Durham. I'm not ready to talk about an age of resurrection that is so hard to see when the losses of death are so real. Jesus tells this certain sure group of scholars all will be different in the coming age, and that's fine and good, but we aren't in that age. We are here. We marry. We divorce. We bury our dead. We are not angels. Last weekend, before her college fellowships, All Saints worship service, my daughter found herself with a group of Durham teenagers, several of whom knew Xavier. They were visiting the Durham Memorial Homicide Quilt together, which is a project that was started by Sidney Brody in 1994. And since that year, Brody has added a patch to that quilt for every homicide victim in Durham. My daughter's lived in Durham about two years, and she was taken aback by the size of the quilt. But those she was with were focused on the particularity of the squares themselves. I bet I can find my uncle's name, one said. Brody had already added Xavian to the quilt. In an interview over the summer, he spoke of three days last spring when he added a square every day. And normally, he closes the border of the quilt after every square that he adds. But after three days of having to rip open the border and add a square and then restitch it shut, he left it open. I got tired, he said. Wendell Berry tells us to practice resurrection in his well-used poem. 
Every day do something that won't compute, work for nothing, ask questions that have no answers, plant sequoias. What Barry doesn't describe is how to sustain that work over decades. How does one keep from getting tired? Sometimes people of God, you have to watch not just what a preacher says, but how they say it. The images they use, the, the pictures that they, they draw on, the stories they, they tell. And you, you better do that particularly when the preacher's Jesus. How Jesus teaches often has great significance for what he teaches. And I don't think it's any mistake that Jesus ends up right where he does in this gospel passage, standing next to Moses in a burning bush. I mean, it's an odd scriptural choice. If he was doing a lesson on, on marriage, Genesis 2 would have made more sense. But I think Jesus is doing more than putting icing on his argument. He's doing more than proof texting his point. I think he's giving us a picture of what it looks like when resurrection breaks into history, when resurrection touches the now. He doesn't explain it. Because some things can't be explained. But he shows it through, through a story that every one of his listeners knows, through a flaming bush that's not consumed, through a divine voice that calls in the wilderness, through the dusty ground of the present made holy. Jesus moves, moves past preposition into proclamation. He blows right through prose into poetry because, as it turns out, he wants more too. He wants more for that woman, and he wants more for the streets of Durham. He wants more even for those Sadducees, even for us. I, I love how he pays attention to those present tense verbs. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not God was. I love that this God of the living calls Moses to the biggest fight of his life, not for some future abstraction, but a present tense fight that's waited long enough. But mostly, I love that this God of resurrection refuses to concede God's people to an age of death and empire pressing this age against the age that is coming in a conflagration of love. If you squint, you can almost see them. Isaac and Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Rebecca and Rachel shining in the fire of God's urgency like all saints' candles. Not erased, but changed, testifying to a love bigger than they knew, glowing off the contours of Moses' face until he himself seems lit with flame, alive in God, alive to God. Maybe Jesus needed to hear the story himself. Maybe he needed to see that flame again and remind himself before he heads into the week to come that resurrection makes a difference. Perhaps the shadows of your life are growing long 
or you see those lengthening shadows in the life of one you love. Come close to the flame. Feel the heat on your cheek. There is no investment of your heart that will be lost or wasted, but it will be changed. Held secure in the heart of God, it will testify to a love bigger than you know, and it will light the world. Perhaps the shadows of your faith are growing long. Maybe you know a woman who is a faintly burning wick, or maybe you are that woman. Let God's call find you in your wilderness. Your life matters. Your light matters. So do not wait Turn your face to the light of God's coming and shine. Or maybe the light of your hope, the shadows of your hope, are growing long. You're tired of the not yet. You're tired of the ripped border of promise. You're tired of death. I am too. Take the shoes from off your feet, for the ground on which you stand is holy. You do not belong to fear or pharaohs, and you are not your own. You belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, which means that today, this day, the God of resurrection is raising you. Go! Practice that resurrection. You're not alone in the work. Sidney Brody doesn't kid himself. He knows quilt squares aren't going to fix Durham's violence, at least, at least not overnight. But he doesn't leave the border of his quilt open anymore. I close the border after each square, he says, in hope that the quilt is finished forever. I think the city is worth the fight. Amen. <laughs>